Wagwan folks, it's Fitter Food Radio. This is episode number 38. And uh, I'm of course here with Keris. Morning. <laughs> Hello. An amazing guest on the show today. We, we've been trying to get her on for so, for so long. She's just always too busy for us. Um, her name is Emma Myhill. Oh no, hold on. We, it's about our fourth, fifth, sixth appearance, <laughs> isn't it? I think it's the fifth, <laughs> I think. Emma, how you doing? Yeah, I'm great. I'm actually really great. Everyone, everyone knows you now. I don't even think we need to, to intro you now. We could just let you speak and people would recognise your voice. We, we get a lot of emails saying about how much people love your voice. Yeah, we do. Aw, oh, that's, you, that's That could be a... So, guys, if you haven't um, listened to our all of our episodes yet, uh, shame on you. Um, but <laughs> please do so. And, of course, listen to Emma's previous episodes. But Emma is now how many months? How many weeks pregnant, even? I'm 33 weeks. Wow. So that's eight months and a week. Jeez. Not long. Okay. So, well, because <laughs> my train of thought was, like, you can maybe even do a little bit of a voiceover work, you know, to... <laughs> As a bit of a sideline income, you know, while she's looking like, after the baby. I was thinking audio books. Audio books, radio. <laughs> the opportunities are endless, Emma. Hook me up with someone. <laughs> I'm actually really good. Are you still bouncing away on your Swiss ball? <laughs> Before we started this episode, guys, we um, we were actually on video call with, with Emma and she was bouncing away and we did, we couldn't work out if she was just really excited to speak to us or she was obviously sitting on something bouncy. I thought it was a space hopper. <laughs> but guys, um, on our last no, episode... Should, should explain why she was on a... <laughs> why she was bouncing around. Okay, yeah, why, why, why was she on a Swiss ball, Em? Because I'm getting to that stage in pregnancy now where... You I'm... don't fit into a chair. It's not, you, you, you haven't got piles, have you? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. <laughs> Um, I'm getting to that stage in pregnancy where I, I need to encourage the baby to be in the right position for an easier birth. So if you have to sit for long periods of time, it, you're, well... I'm thinking audiobook. Audiobooks, <laughs> radio, the opportunities are endless, Emma. <laughs> Hook me up with someone. <laughs> I'm actually really good. Are you still bouncing away on your Swiss ball? <laughs> Before we started this episode, guys, we um, we were actually on video call with, with Emma and she was bouncing away and we did, we couldn't work out if she was just really excited to speak to us or she was obviously sitting on something bouncy. I thought it was a space hopper. <laughs> but guys, um, on our last no, episode... Should, should explain why she was on a... <laughs> why she was bouncing around. Okay, yeah, why, why, why was she on a Swiss ball, Em? Because I'm getting to that stage in pregnancy now where... You I'm... don't fit into a chair. It's not, you, you, <laughs> you haven't got piles, have you? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. <laughs> Um, I'm getting to that stage in pregnancy where I, I need to encourage the baby to be in the right position for an easier birth. So if you have to sit for long periods of time, it, you're well, in, in a normal kind of office job, if you were hunched over and working on a um, computer and keyboard, then you're inclined, your posture's not normally very good unless you're very aware of it. And if I'm sitting for long periods of time, you you could encourage the baby to be a bit squished and therefore move into a position that's not best position for birth. So anytime I'm sitting for long periods, I prefer to be upright and bouncing and moving. So I'm encouraging the baby to be in the right position. Oh. There's there's also a bit of um, a, a historic that in the sense that when we were a bit more tribal, we used to go on long journeys and so the bouncing imitates that movement I like walking like long walks yeah, yeah. Mm. that's interesting ah. mm. 
So is that even at night when you're watching telly with um, it's Dan is your other half? You're, you're bouncing on a ball and he's just like sat on the sofa next to you. <laughs> when we're going to talk about exercise, but in terms of your body as a as a woman when you're carrying a baby, it's important to keep moving. But also in this last trimester, if there are problems in terms of the baby's position, then going on all fours is a really good thing to do. Um, like like trying to uh, almost doing some squats perhaps with your elbows leaning on the inside of your thighs and then squatting up up and down I mean that's an exercise in itself but um, the idea is just to give the baby space and room to be manipulated in the right position mm. <laughs> so what have you been doing um, sort of now on a daily basis exercise wise are you would you still say you're training or you're just sort of doing movement throughout the day well this week uh, so, so I'm I'm a gym goer, and so I, I used to go up onto the gym floor and do my own little freestyle thing with mainly weights based. And then when I discovered I was pregnant, um, I thought mm, I might now switch to doing more classes. So I, but the classes are still well, they vary actually. So they'll they'll include a certain amount of weights like body pump. Um, I'll do Zumba just partly because I love dancing and it's it's funny as hell. <laughs> and then I so so I'll be exercising um, probably for uh, about maybe five five hours a week, uh, five or six hours a week still. And I have been doing that right up until this week actually. And it was only when I was doing a little bit of a, a circuit training class on Monday. And I suddenly, for the first time, found that my the, the weight in my belly is heavy. It's heavy. <laughs> and as I was running around, I was thinking, this is starting to feel a bit uncomfortable now. And I always said, at the moment I feel any discomfort, then I'll slow everything right down. So, so this week I've slowed everything right down except for bouncing on balls and pregnancy yoga. But you, you still um, walk in as well. Like, just I mean, you walk on a daily basis, don't you? Like for yeah. I'm very lucky I was in the back of my house, so I go for little wanders in the woods. Oh, lovely. Aww. Yeah, which is really nice, actually. And, you know, the whole... You only have to step inside of a woodland and your breath changes, everything changes. I mean, you'll know yeah. that. For, um, oh, yeah. Your, your entire um, chemistry of your body changes as soon as you're outside in nature. I think it just changes your entire day. Like, you know, the, the way we start our day now... In terms of our routine, is is identical, but our surroundings and environment are obviously completely different. Yeah. And it just puts you in. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, like this morning, Keris went for a walk with Hamish, and we're literally two minutes away from the river and fields and it's and whatnot. Thing. And I went to the gym, but even this gym here, it's uh, it's got floor to ceiling windows all the way around, so it lets in natural light rather than the basement gym that I used to train in. And it just makes such a difference to how you start your day. I love it. Yeah, it lifts you. It literally lifts you. Exactly. But Emma, so... I have la- one, one last question about uh, exercise. Sorry to interrupt Okay, that. and Was... I thought we were doing exercise later in the podcast. Oh. I thought this was a brief... We've, we've gone... Touching We've point. gone back to front. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> What I was going to ask was, are you doing um, heart rate monitoring at all? Because I know sometimes NHS uh, will tell pregnant women not to let their heart rate go above. I think it's um, I think it's 120 beats per minute, or maybe a bit higher, 130, but or a percentage of their um, maximum heart rate based on their age. 
And um, I disagree with this a little bit because um, there's such different levels of fitness out there. And I just think you're going to have women panicking that they, they sort of did a few weights and their heart rate went above what it's supposed to. That's the thing. And like it? you, you kinda... I think using natural feedback from the body, yeah. from energy levels, from, you know, you know, it's just just more individual it's going to be more accurate if anything well i think you know people lose the ability just to listen to their own body you know it's because if people start obsessing over a number that is in a bit of literature somewhere you know it just plants that seed and plants that panic and worry that you could probably do without to be honest with you do you know there is so much monitoring and so many things that i mean you can opt out of which a lot of a lot of stuff i've opted out of but um, there is so much to think about when you're pregnant. In addition to all of that, monitoring your heartbeat or heart rate, sorry, is, is just a bit ridiculous. I wouldn't advise it. Um, I, I a lot of people automatically think that they shouldn't exercise when they're pregnant, and that's just wrong. You you have to envisage labour. The word labour itself, if you think about what it means, yes. Yeah. It's like it's almost like training. You're going to run a marathon without training. So you must, must make sure that you exercise in a way that's helping with... And, and this is where I would say resistance exercise is really important because you need to have strong muscles in your thighs in terms of being able to support just the changes that's going on in your pelvis and uterus, etc., and if you don't have that strength, then labour is going to be more laborious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot of people are, especially in their first trimester, they think, um, "Oh no, I, I shouldn't exercise now because I'm pregnant." In the first trimester, you're more prone. Some people get some nausea and sickness, but you are definitely more prone to tiredness. So you you don't override that. You listen to your body. So if you're tired and you don't feel like physically exercising, then don't. But on the days that you perhaps feel actually, no, I could do something, then do something. And if you don't feel at your strongest, then just go for a walk. Um, And I mean, certainly at my gym where I've been going, uh, a lot of the women, the times that I go are are off peak. So a lot of the the women in their 50s and 60s, and they keep saying, I don't know how you're doing it. I don't know how you're doing it. And how, why are you still here? And you know, and it's and I don't take offence, it's fine. I, I just literally say to them, that if I felt uncomfortable, I would stop. Yeah. Um, and you have to listen to your body. You become incredibly intuitive when you're pregnant. And if you let other monitoring equipment or other people dictate to you how you should be feeling or what you should be doing or feeling um it's easy to to to, to forget to listen to your own intuition i think the main thing is is that you don't start taking on anything that you weren't doing already right so you know like if you if you're all of a sudden start going to zumba classes after never doing zumba ever before in your life then that's a pretty bad decision but you know, so long as you continue doing what you have been doing for a long time, which may be classes, walking, I don't know, uh, lifting weights, whatever it be. Where was it? The Metro paper. And there was that woman that got absolutely slated for, for maintaining her weight training routine quite, quite, quite late into her pregnancy. And there was a picture of her with a kettlebell. And she was like massive, massive belly, you know, quite yeah. heavily pregnant. She got absolutely slated for it, um, saying that it was wrong, it was selfish and, and whatnot. But when you actually read read the article and what she does, I mean, I think it was her third pregnancy and she'd got two healthy children. She'd done the exact same thing with them. Yet people just took it upon themselves to absolutely um, slate her for it. But, uh, 
you know, she was smart about it. She was just doing what she'd always done yeah. and just adapted the the intensity and the, the frequency and probably, you know, just the overall volume of the exercise, which to me makes perfect sense. I think that's my main bit of advice for when I'm speaking to pregnant women about exercises, I just sort of say scale it back. So doesn't, there shouldn't really be any PBs, yeah. any, trying to hit any new records or, like you said, try any new <laughs> exercises. Maintaining you're training alone is a PB in itself, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> one thing I was going to ask Emma was, in the first trimester, because of the higher risk of miscarriage, do you, did you or do you often uh, recommend to clients avoiding anything like impact exercise and just switching more to low impact? Or have you just... Yeah, I mean, I in, in my first trimester, I suddenly just felt a little bit uncomfortable about kind of freestyling on the gym floor, yeah. um, and and I thought, mm, no, I'm going to stick to to low low impact classes, and and definitely, yeah, because you 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 have got a higher chance of miscarriage in the first trimester. So absolutely, you just need to be sensible. And Matt exactly said the most important thing is that you don't start something new when you fall pregnant so you know what your body is is physically able to do before pregnancy and if you just maintain that but particularly in the first trimester just be cautious and aware of of that being one of the most crucial times of the pregnancy and just don't go over the top so wise um but on on just before we kind of get get into it um, on the last episode, we spoke a lot about kind of um, prenatal. Uh, well, that was mainly what we spoke about, really, wasn't it? Preparing the body for pregnancy. Yeah, preparing the body for pregnancy and the kind of run up to pregnant um, to pop in, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> to give it a scientific uh, <laughs> meaning. <laughs> um, and the funny thing was, we actually ran out of time, didn't we? Because you know, there's obviously it's quite a complex subject, old pregnancy, and we we got a bit carried away and. You were quite disappointed, Emma, weren't you? And in fact, <laughs> Emma is the only guest we've had on the show that actually probably pesters us to get back on the show and emails <laughs> us in advance what she wants to cover, which is amazing because it makes our life so easy because we know it's always going to be good as well. So in this episode, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Em, uh, but you wanted to touch on uh, supplements, uh, labour itself, and then obviously some antenatal advice. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we touched a little bit on supplements last time. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, you're right. I can't remember what episode it was now, guys, so you'd have to just uh, listen to them all yeah. and find it yourself. <laughs> I think it was 33. I think you might be right. Yeah, it wasn't long ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, certainly I, I wanted to, to, to let you know the things that I, I was taking. I think we mentioned DHA and the importance of that. I mean, that's an omega-3 part of the omega-3 family. So you have EPA and DHA. And we even mentioned the brand Minami Nutrition, um, which is a really the strongest dose of DHA that you can get out there currently. Um, and that was, I think we, we spoke about the fact that a lot of women experience pregnancy brain, which is you forget things, you become a bit clumsy, and you do random things like put your car keys in the fridge. Um, wow and, <laughs> have you done that Emma is that what you're saying it no Matt because I take DHA <laughs> good answer <laughs> so so the DHA we spoke about was was relevant to that um in the sense that 
the baby will steal your DHA. So the DHA is shunted towards the baby. So obviously DHA is very important for brain function. And that's why you can get what's known as pregnancy brain and then also breastfeeding brain. Um, so to, to stop that, you take DHA at quite high doses. And we were saying about two to three grams a day, which seems like a lot. It's actually quite a few tablets. But is it, is it about six tablets? Something like that, is that right? Yeah, something. I mean, I I think I'm taking four a day now. Yeah. Per tablet, it's 480 milligrams of DHA per tablet. And do you spread that out across the day, or is that like a morning and evening type thing? Actually, I just take it all in the morning, but that's that's largely because I can't be faffed spreading things out throughout the day. But it, (laughs) it would probably be better spread out throughout the day. But there's no harm in having a big dose right at right at the beginning of the day. It's not like a B vitamin, which is water soluble, which you would urinate out. Your body will store it, so it won't be wasted if you take it all in one day. And this is in addition to eating oily fish, because some people will sort of um, say, yeah, well, I have my salmon three times a week, so I don't need that. But here you're sort of compensating for the extra need, um, obviously, to support pregnancy. So you're still eating oily fish as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, The thing that that it's doing is helping to reduce any inflammation, helping that loss of of memory that you may have. Um, And it it would also help with lowering blood pressure, which if you have preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure in pregnancy um, in your family, then potentially you could be more prone to that. So that would also help reduce that risk of preeclampsia as well. And actually, um, in the I mentioned on the previous podcast the um, gut and mental health um, conference I went to, and DHA was mentioned several times um, for things like autism, Asperger's, sort of um, all the child behavioural disorders, and and again the importance of that through breastfeeding and through pregnancy is obviously going to be significant as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you'll um, continue that throughout the time that you breastfeed. You'll keep that dose of DHA the same. Oh yeah, yeah. Throughout throughout breastfeeding, and um, and then you know you can gradually start to reduce it. You don't really want to be apart from probiotics. You don't really want to be on anything at high doses for for you know long long term. Yeah. Because you can. You, we don't know as human beings that our each of our individual chemistry at every second of the day. So we don't know potentially if we're interfering with or causing imbalances. So it, it would be important not to stay on that ongoingly, but perhaps dip in and out of it every now and again. Yeah. Ah. So what else are you taking? We've got, um, we think we covered vitamin D and some, yeah. um, are you doing a, 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 a prenatal multivitamin? Yeah. Um, initially, I was doing one with uh, a methylated form of B vitamin in it. Um, and the reason behind that would be um, if you know if you if, if you could, if you manage to know your own genome, so your own genetic coding, and you know if certain genes are upregulated or downregulated, you can figure out whether you methylate well or not. And there is a particular gene that's called methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, or MTHFR for short. Um, and that gene is, is one of the most important in terms of your ability to methylate and without going on to the subject of methylation because it is enormous. <laughs> <laughs> Very brief way of understanding methylation is that it's without it, we would die. 
So it's it's happening every second of the day in every single cell in our body. So it's making things happen. So you need to be able to methylate to be able to conceive and to carry a baby. Um, so there have been links with undermethylation with uh, infertility and high levels of miscarriage. Um, and it's largely to do with your ability to turn folate, which is, is uh, what used to be called vitamin B9, but it's your ability to turn folate, folate or folic acid into the active form, which is methyl tetrahydrofolate or MTHF. And if you know that you can, you don't methylate very well. Matt doesn't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had the, he had the test on. I do. You and he doesn't. So we, Matt doesn't. No. So we switched it, um, the multivitamin to Designs for Health one with the active um, MTHFR. So, so was well, did Matt have a snip on his MTHFR gene? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so what does this mean? <laughs> why, why are you surprised? <laughs> well, that's that. I mean, that's that's a really good discovery to make. It's <laughs> really important, isn't it? Well, yeah. I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> so, so out of interest, how long have you been taking methylated B vitamins for? When did we switch? Only a, we only got the test back in uh, May June, and so from about August, we've yeah. gone on to the methylated ones. And have you noticed any changes, Matt? I feel slightly more awesome than I already was. <laughs> but marginal, you know. Inflammation-wise, <laughs> I think you're better. No, I'm definitely better. I'm definitely better. Um, That's great. Yeah. You know, the rashes and things were... were oh, we're always were, talking about my rashes, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> Thanks, Kerris. He's about to go around again and do another a got a five-hour programme, aren't you? Same one you recommended, Emma, but a bit stricter. Yeah. <laughs> on, on the dairy and ice cream. <laughs> Well, I've actually, I, admittedly, I've actually taken dairy out, um, bar a little bit of grass-fed organic butter, and I can, I, I feel a difference. It's only been like about six days since I've not had um, any cheese or of any sort, um, and, and I, I definitely feel a bit better for it, for sure, in my gut and my joints, etc. And I, but I always do when I cut out dairy, and I'm always a bit annoyed at myself when I bring it back in because yeah. I just get a bit carried away with it. Actually, just, um, this is a good link as well. We also started taking, we always do bone broth, I know, but we started taking the Great Lakes collagen. Yeah. So obviously, glycine-wise, which is really important in methylation, you've increased that quite a bit. And that's something that you've mentioned, Emma, you're, you, you're taking collagen. I do take collagen, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, I, I make bone broths as well. So if you didn't want to supplement, and, you know, it's not entirely necessary to supplement collagen if you're actually getting it in bone broths. But if you if you don't make enough bone broths then you can supplement with collagen um, perfectly safe safely throughout pregnancy but yeah the collagen will contain proline and glycine which are really important amino acids um and what you're doing is you're supporting connective tissue you're if if you do have intestinal permeability or leaky gut you're actually supporting that as well because that's one of the a key a key nutrient that would help repair any gut damage um, and also a plus point, which I think we spoke about in the last podcast, was with stretch marks. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you're actually helping to reduce stretch marks. And at 33 weeks... <laughs> Just got this image of you rubbing broth onto the stretch marks, but obviously you mean consumed internally, just in case anyone's wondering. Ba- yeah. Bathing in a bath of broth. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you'd smell awful, really. <laughs> <I can> imagine. <laughs> 
but I mean, at 33 weeks and two days, I am now. Um, there's, I don't have any stretch marks, oh, which amazing. is which is a bonus. However, I will just say, a lot of women suddenly turn 37 weeks and stretch marks appear overnight. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I, d- I, d- I still think you need to write a book about all this, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps I will. The, an- the anti-stretch mark pregnancy. You, you make a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> So, so just going back to the um, sorry, the B vitamins because um, sorry, we took you off track there talking about Matt's um, snip. W- would you advise um, a particular? So, is there a brand that you recommend, or should women just look for basically active forms of B vitamins? And does that apply to? Would you say all the B vitamins? So even the B twelve and um, the whole B vitamin family in their active form. Yeah, if you, if you have a problem with, with methylation, the main concern is folate, so folic acid. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you, you, it would also be beneficial to get the activated B12 as well, um, and even B6. But it doesn't mean that all, all women that are listening now, without understanding their genome, that's a necessity. So it's not crucial for you if you haven't tested your genome and you don't know if you methylate well or not to take an activated methylated form of B vitamins or or, you know, or a multi that contains it. But um, if, if you do know and you are an under-methylator, it would be an important part of that first stage of pregnancy. And do, um, do um, our sort of midwives or GPs or any of your tests you haven't done, are they testing any uh, folate levels or B12 throughout the pregnancy or is it just at the onset that you have a blood test? Um, they test it twice. So they tested it right at the beginning, um, but they're not testing um so they test iron they do a full blood count yeah um, but they will do the the very basic full blood count so in terms of your iron levels they're just they're not going into the the crucial um that they're not measuring your ferritin levels unless you actually ask for it and just measure iron um so they won't measure ferritin is the the protein that iron is bound to, um, which is a more accurate reading of your own levels. And B12 will be on there as well, and folate is on there as well. But it, they don't, I mean, the, the um, reference ranges would be slightly different. And they're very, very slow to flag things up to you anyway. So once you've, you've given your blood at the initial stages, you then give another full blood count. I think it was about 30, 30 weeks, 29 weeks. Yeah. Um, and they really are only looking for any massive markers that are out of reference range. Um, so it would be in your interest, really, if, if you were concerned, um, to, to do some of your own monitoring. But but I would really, I'd really say if you're feeling good throughout the pregnancy, then just go with it. Keep doing what you're doing and don't worry too much. Have you, do you have any additional tests? Did you run any on yourself, like stool tests or anything? Yeah, I did, I did. I ran um, uh, what's called a GI effect, which is a stool analysis. Um, it's the usual stool analysis, but it incorporates looking at your anaerobic bacteria, which is the bacteria that potentially were in your small intestine that have passed through to the large intestine and you've excreted but have died. So a normal stool test wouldn't pick it up because it wouldn't be alive in a Petri dish. Um, whereas looking at the DNA of anaerobic bacteria, which is, is effectively dead by the time it's been excreted, you're actually looking at your microbial diversity. 
Um, and that was important to me because I think you both know I love the gut. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of my little bubs coming out, um, I want to make sure it's taking a big, massive dose and being covered with a huge, diverse range of bacteria. And I wanted to, to check my own. I'm very happy to say. <laughs> <laughs> My microbial diversity is immense. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, is that checking things like the, the normal bifidobacterium lactobacillus as well? Yeah. In, in, but it's, yeah. So that's in the small intestine, not just in the, in the colon? The bifidobacterium is more to do with the, with the large intestine, in the okay. which is why you can pick it up easily in, in a normal stool sample. Yeah. But if you, if you really want to really understand the stuff that as soon as it's excreted, it dies, then you need to be doing a DNA analysis of anaerobic bacteria. And that, that would be the stuff that's, that's happening in the small intestine, that by the time it's excreted, it's died. And we spoke briefly about this just before we started recording, but I was saying to you that would probably be a better test to do to identify small intestinal bacterial overgrowth then, wouldn't it, in mm. terms of looking at... Would it look at the balance between, um, well, you know, pathogenic forms? Does it identify those as well? It identifies pathogenic forms. Um, it will identify any mycology, but the, the most important thing, it, it, it's telling you... Because the more diverse your microbiome is... This is, this is just the commensal bacteria. So this is the stuff that lives there and is, is sometimes doing us a favour, sometimes it's scrounging off of us, but without causing us any ill effects. So, so it's picking up on, on really the, the main point of it is you want a diverse range of bacteria and if you don't have it, then you need to be looking at why. So either you're not eating it in your diet, as in fermented foods, etc., or um, you, you're not supplementing with probiotics. And have you done both throughout the pregnancy? Probi what, supplement with probiotics? And eat, eat fermented foods as well? Or you yes, yes, absolutely. I love making weird concoctions of kefir. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing we've never done. We've done no. vegetables. We tend to do the vegetables more than I've never done. I know some people do fermented coconut water and... Um, <clears throat> I actually tried one, uh, fermented coconut milk in Planet oh, yeah. Organic. They sell it now. They sell everything there now. Um, and it was really nice, actually. I think I preferred it to, because we've had, um, the other thing we've brought is the, the raw kefir from the Chuckling Goat Company. Oh, yeah. Uh, where they do a little subscription and they send you loads of little pint pots and you freeze them. <laughs> Great. Um, and that was pretty cool, wasn't it? And she really like recommends putting it on your skin and everything. Um, and it's all right, but I always feel like I'm drinking it out of like it's not something you look forward to each morning, is it? A pot of no. sour milk. But what do you? What would you? Uh, what do you do with the kefir? Are you doing milk or? No, I've got water, water grains. So kefir water grains, and I um, so I feed it um, raw cane sugar. So it's brown raw cane sugar. Um, and the idea is that is that by the time you eat it or drink it, um, the bacteria has digested the sugar. So it's not a high sugary drink. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so I'll, I'll feed it uh, the raw cane sugar and I'll leave it for a few days until there's lots of bubbles in the water. And then I'll strain the kefir grains off, so I'll keep the water and then start that process again with fresh water um, and, and refeed it with raw cane sugar. And then the water that I've initially drained off, I'll then bottle into a glass 
almost like you're brewing alcohol actually into a, a, one of those glass bottles with a popper on top. Yeah. And I'll add things like I might I might have soaked it for a day in mango pieces and then bottled it. Oh no. Nice. Wow. Or I might immediately in the bottle stick a licorice stick in. Um, and then what you're doing by bottling it and keeping it compressed, the liquid compressed, you need to burp it every day and it becomes fizzy. So you have a fizzy, sweet-ish, sour-ish drink. Amazing. So, so the licorice and mango are just different flavours of it then? Yeah, yeah. I can see I can see a little shop coming along. <laughs> Perfect chocolate and then mango kefir, licorice kefir. You have to bring me some samples, Emma, at the uh, conference at the end of the month. Yeah. As well as the chocolate samples. Absolutely, there'll be chocolate samples there. So, yes, I've been doing that throughout the pregnancy. Ah, okay. And um, so the other um, supplements that we, um, well, you sent us a list of just some things that we could cover was, um, so alpha-lipoic acid. And mm-hmm. is that something you, again, taking throughout pregnancy or at a particular yeah. stage? Yeah, I think, I mean, alpha-lipoic acid was something that I was taking ongoingly anyway. It's one of those nutrients to me that is just a hero on so many levels. So lots of people, well, it, it's, it's an antioxidant in its own right. Um, it, it becomes a further antioxidant in the body because it increases something that's called glutathione. And glutathione is an intracellular antioxidant, which simply means it's an antioxidant that's produced internally in the body. And it's one of your main kind of free radical fighters in the body. So by taking alpha-lipoic acid, you increase that production. And uh, without waffling on too much about genes... You could never (laughs) waffle, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) You can, when you test your genome, um, you can discover if uh, glutathione is, if the glutathione gene is present or absent. Um, and in my case, it's absent. Uh-huh. So, so I overcome that by taking alpha-lipoic acid. So rather than, I, I think perhaps the rest of the supplements that we mentioned, they're, they're more individual to me as a, as a woman, as an individual woman. Um, so not, not necessarily things that I would recommend throughout every pregnancy, but for me, alpha-lipoic acid was going to be helping with my own glutathione production. And um, why would you choose that over, because you can now have liposomal glutathione, and I know that's something Dave Asprey recommends in his... Better yeah. baby book. Why? Why did you choose the um, alpha lipoic acid over that? Because, um, because lipoic glutathione tastes vile. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand it. Um, you know, it's funny because I we we had it for a while. We actually did the same test as you did, but we uh, we were, we had the gene, so we're fine. Um, so at that point, I couldn't really argue was why why Matt should taste have this vile <laughs> stuff every morning. I didn't mind it. I can't remember. You know, the, it's, it's like a, it was it was sort of sour is the best way. It's, oh, Matt's like, I don't even know what, you just make me swallow these potions and things. <laughs> little cocktails. It's, it's, one of, it's one of those things you can't disguise either. It's I really don't like it. I thought it was all right. I tell you what, it is absolutely horrendous, which I've brought. Um, we um, interviewed somebody who recommended, I don't even know... Um, it's the, you know, when you have the minerals as a liquid, so the zinc and the magnesium, I'm trying to think of the brand, um, and it's supposed to be more bioavailable. So we brought um, Mega Mag and this zinc, and it's literally the most disgusting thing I've ever tried. It just is it, tastes... Is it as well? 
No, so no, it's um, I'm trying to think. It's um, again, it's something to do with how it's it's more to do with it's ionic. That's it, ionic minerals. Ah. So the idea being that obviously think of biochemically, they are apparently more uh, sort of move into the cells more easily. Right. And uh, yeah, it is just the most disgusting thing. It's like. We have like mints on stand. Yeah, we have mints next to it. We have xylitol mints so that you do the shot of the the magnesium and the zinc and then you have to take the mints. And I I gave my mum and dad a shot of zinc because my mum had a cold. And she was like, that is just quite possibly the most... It's like, I can't even explain it. It's like metal. tastes like metal, doesn't it? Like you're drinking metallic-y water. But like, um, yeah, just really strong metallic taste that takes over your entire mouth and you can't taste anything else. It makes It's really awful. (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I know the science behind them is quite good, but I actually don't think I'd ever recommend it on that basis because compliance would be zero. <laughs> it's still it's easy to do though like you just do it as a shot i know boom, but i actually done. feel like you have to build up to it and like we, we, we're used to this stuff because you know we're, we're quite like let's test it and we're quite dedicated but a lot of i don't think many clients would actually take that no but, yeah. I, I agree you have to, you have to be anything that really screws your nose up or in terms of being a practitioner then I, I really think i would think twice before you recommend it to to clients and other people <laughs> The, the other thing about alpha-lipoic acid is um, in terms of, well, in terms of gestational diabetes, which is actually being picked up a lot more frequently nowadays, um, alpha-lipoic acid um, increases insulin sensitivity, which means that it helps you become uh, more receptive towards insulin. So um, a, desensitize, a desensitization in insulin, would, would you'll be leaning towards um, type 2 diabetes and also gestational diabetes so alpha-lipoic acid would also help balance your blood sugar levels it's actually been studied isn't it and compared to metformin in that sense as a, a, a well a healthier alternative because metformin is quite distressing to the gut Absolutely. and I know there's a lot of studies being done to suggest that could be an alternative treatment but yeah. I suppose it, there's no money in it probably so <laughs> Uh, one thing I was going to ask about as well, you mentioned uh, on your list is N-acetylcysteine. Mm. Um, again, uh, well, obviously explain why that is, but we also think there's a side effect to NAC that we want to ask you about. Oh. <laughs> well, N-acetylcysteine is, is helping with glutathione production again, and also it's it's working as a heavy metal collator. Yeah. So if you if you if you um, I mean, it's a bit annoying to keep going on about diagnostic testing when. Perhaps people haven't tested for anything, but if you're aware of, or let's let's just say, even if you had a lot of amalgam fillings, I wouldn't really hesitate too much about taking a kind of maintenance low dose level of N-acetylcysteine throughout pregnancy, because if you have a mouth full of amalgams, then you are definitely leaching some mercury into your body, and that would be a good idea just to do a kind of a maintenance dosage throughout pregnancy. And you wouldn't suggest um, anyone get their fillings removed during pregnancy, as in they discover they're pregnant and run, or, run off and get them removed at that time, would you necessarily? Or Absolutely not, no. In fact, avoid it. Um, because potentially what you'll be doing is, with the removal of any amalgam fillings, you will actually leach mercury into the body. Um, even if you've gone to the best holistic dentist available, they can't physically stop some mercury being uh, ingested. So it's important not to have them removed when you're pregnant. And it's also important not to have any put in when you're pregnant. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. I try and minimise 
um, visit to the dentist full stop during pregnancy, I think, yeah. <laughs> the amount of things that they give you. <laughs> but it's interesting, the case, because you get free dental care when you're pregnant. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I know, I hope that doesn't encourage women to go and get things done like get their veneers yeah no oh no well i think it would encourage people to go oh god Um, the last time i went they gave me um i don't know if this is um i'd actually gone because i broke a tooth years ago and put off going so they scare me dentists but um end up needing a, a crown and she gave me four injections into my gum and i don't know if it's because i like to think it's because i'm so fit and healthy they wouldn't take effect um, the anaesthetic so she kept tapping me and I was like I still feel it and um, she said she wasn't sure why but she went just go and sit in the waiting room for another half an hour 40 minutes and I had to have I think I had five injections in the end and it looked like my face I looked like I'd had a stroke by the time I left the dentist because she gave me so much anaesthetic and I just thought this cannot be good <laughs> like my poor body and actually Matt you saw me didn't you like half an hour after and you were like what's wrong with your face <laughs> And it was completely sloped down one side. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Did you eat for the rest of the day? No, no, you can't, I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't feel, I couldn't even talk. I was just dribbling all over myself. And uh, that's that's actually when I did then, um, I think I went and took a load of vitamin C and, and acetylcysteine because I was like, I need to just get this out of my system. Um, and interestingly, I took it... Um, I got some last week because we were back in London for courses and I just think the amount of pollution and stuff you breathe in, you know, like your nose is black when you get in after a day out in London. It is, um, it actually is. And, and my ears were actually, interestingly, I, like I'm, um, my ears were all like, I don't know, I've just been out in the cold and I just put some cotton wool in my ears and it came up black and I'm like, that's really nice. Um, but we wanted to ask you about a side effect because Matt basically had really awful wind. And he noticed that it was the day you started the NAC, yeah, wasn't it? It was crazy bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> my God. And it was almost like banished to the spare room wind. And um, So it was. It had a stink about it. Really oh, eggy. Yeah, it and was, it was wondered, loud, it was smelly. It was the egginess that was always... And it, it, the weirdest thing, because my, my eating-wise, I was eating... The same. I was eating absolutely bang on, like, nutritionally. Um, but, oh, it was vile. But because it's a sulfur amino acid, I wondered, it's one, if that exactly. was the link... Yeah, what? I was just about to say. I think it would. I think the only link there would be the fact that it's sulfurous amino acid. So should he? Is it all right for him to take? Do you think, or is that a sign <laughs> there's something else going on with his gut? I mean, there's always something going on with Matt's gut, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's interesting that you'd have that reaction. I've never known anyone to have that reaction. Um, and is it is it definitely every time you take it? Well, it's, I stopped taking we it. Stopped. And it stopped. <laughs> yeah, you stopped. I didn't stop, but um, yeah, and it's gone away. It? We've got a solar ray. Solar, yeah. And it's a six, I think it's 600 micrograms, I think, per capsule. Milligrams. Milligrams, sorry. Does it, does it have um, any other added ingredients? No, I don't think so. No, it's just an acetylcysteine. It's just that. Yeah. He's got, Matt's going to go off and check now. <laughs> just to see. Um, I mean, the only thing I'd, I'd put that down to is, is the perhaps it's having an effect. Was it at the same time that he started taking the methylated B vitamins? Um, yeah, well, no, he'd been taking that all summer and he's never taken NAC uh, with it generally until now. I wonder if there is a connection with the Matt's now ability to methylate and increase, I don't know, perhaps phase two detoxification. Yeah. NAC encouraging that, so... I'm not really sure why he'd get the, the stinky wind, though. 
What's funny is the way you said that, it's like he's developed a new superpower and now he's upregulated. He's got this, this, <laughs> this well, new superpower is basically stinky wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, no, I, it's got in it, um, God, I should check these more. It's got uh, riboflavin, uh, calcium as calcium carbonate, and these are just cofactors, obviously, and... Um, I can never say this. Molybdenum. Molybdenum. <laughs> Molybdenum. That's it, isn't it? Molybdenum. Yeah. <laughs> Molybdenum. And that's it. Yeah. NAC. I, I'm wondering, and this is this is a complete throw it out there. I'm wondering if because Matt's taken NAC before without those side effects. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I've done all sorts of liver stuff. I think it it would be a temporary thing, and I think it's potentially linked with the fact that Matt can now methylate and there has been an increase in his detoxification pathway and for some reason that is causing sulfurous wind. So you think... It's a good thing then. Yeah, so you think I'm methylating now then? You're definitely methylating. (laughs) (laughs) We should get a series of T-shirts printed. It wasn't me, it was my methylation. (laughs) (laughs) No one would pay. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't take what I've said as black and white. I'd probably do a bit more research into it. But but that's the only thing that I can think of, because I've never actually had anyone react to NAC in that way. And the thing is, he eats a lot of onions and garlic as well, don't you? And you're normally fine. Yeah, and the weird thing was as well is I didn't feel bloated at all. Like, I felt fine and it would just just kind of creep (laughs) up out of nowhere and, you know, kind of catch me off guard, you know. (laughs) Catch you off guard? What about me? (laughs) It often made me jump on occasions because, you know, know, lean over to grab something out of the veg basket and, (laughs) It's a shame you can't um, reduce the dosage, so start at a smaller dosage and increase it. Um, we can actually, put, yeah, oh, we can on, change on, supplements and get another another one, probably. Yeah, you can yeah. get... I think I was taking more Just than one Just see if you can build up your tolerance. Yeah. I think you might have taken more than one tablet, so at least we could start with half a tablet or one tablet and then... Is it a tablet that you could cut? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's massive. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> huge. huge. Oh, mate, I think I was taking two. That might, might be why. So that's probably why. 600 milligrams. Oh, so my God, they smell, taking... though. Like they, they do smell, That's actual. how my farts smell. Yeah, that's how we spotted it when we opened the tub of tablets. Like, like, there's similarities here. It could here. be those. <laughs> you were overdosing, Matt. So you're taking oh, indeed. 1,200 milligrams. <laughs> You're taking 1,200 milligrams, you're overdosing. <laughs> Actually, I just thought of a, a really good question. Is Dan taking anything, or have you? did you get Dan take, not, not now, obviously, but just prior to conception, did you get him on any supplements or changes in his diet? Well, oh, yeah, massively. He only had to know me for two seconds before there were changes in his diet. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's interesting is is that um, I, I, don't, I don't have a habit of converting people um, intentionally. So in, in Dan's case, he would, he would say, you know, he was intrigued by what I did, and he would say, um, oh, so, so this, this gluten thing, so that, that involves what? And, you know, and, I'd, and I'd, I'd only offer information if it was asked. And obviously because he was trying to impress me, he then, without me saying, you need to go gluten-free, <laughs> <laughs> he actually um, then took upon it himself pretty much within two days of us being together or actually not even being together 
um, I suppose, courting. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was he was then texting me saying, this morning I've swapped my toast to an omelette. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and I'd be like, great. And and what's funny I said, is that I was saying to him at the beginning, you need to do that for a period of about four weeks, completely gluten-free. And we'd have to keep starting day one every five days because he would he, he comes from a Sicilian background and he would visit one of his aunts and his you can't refuse food in a Sicilian household. <laughs> so so his his aunt would feed him some kind of pasta or bread and he'd forget and he'd go, Oh, I've eaten gluten and I'd say day one tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> And so this kind of went on for a while. But in, in terms of just purely going gluten free, Dan was never overweight, but in terms of purely going gluten-free for four weeks, which actually took longer because he kept breaking the cycle, he went down from a 32-inch waist to a 28-inch waist. Wow. And that I put... I was 28-inch waist when I was, like, 10. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's got a very um, athletic... Yeah, he's got... Um, and he's he uh, that is purely down to the fact that he had... Quite, he has a severe gluten tolerance, and he had, uh, you know, perpetual bloating. Yeah. Without even realising it, I and mean, you know, I looked at him, I could see that he was bloated. It wasn't obvious, but to someone, I mean, I look at people's, I look at people all the time. So, especially someone that I'm interested in, I'll sit there and work out their health <laughs> <laughs> before I reproduce with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, 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 Dan. Dan went on, it was largely a dietary things, not supplemental things. Um, he had, uh, I mean, a, a regardless, you know, disregarding the um, intolerances that he had, which he's pretty much fixed now, although he does every now and again fall into a gluten pig out, um, <laughs> and which, which he suffers with now. So I always laugh at him because I think, well, you know what you're doing now, so you're intelligent enough to get on with it. Yeah. Um, and um, but he, in terms of supplements, he doesn't really have any ill health problems. However, um, he is on a probiotic. He is taking vitamin D, and only recently I got him on um, colostrum um, okay. because I think without actually testing him, I think he does have signs of intestinal permeability, very mildly. But in terms of what we know about intestinal permeability, that could be systemic or it could build into further ill health plus he was a c-section baby um so it makes sense for me to be on that so he's just started colostrum recently but in terms of actually falling prior to pregnancy he he turned his health upside down in, in a positive way just by removing just by cleaning up his diet that's amazing mm. and taking probiotics so that in itself i mean he used to suffer with migraines and headaches and he would actually take an anti-inflammatory every day because for the headaches wow. um, he used to have an itchy left eyebrow <laughs> um and all of that has gone um, so he's complete and what's amazing is he's he must be sold on it now as a as a way of life and as something that you know he's never going to go back there is he no 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 apart from when he fancies a bit of cake or something <laughs> <laughs> I ask that question because um, I think I've said this to you before. I've come across a lot of cases where the mother has been super healthy 
um, you know, taken supplements and throughout pregnancy sort of eaten, you know, like a paleo primal diet, but the, the husband hasn't. And the child has then been um, um, and had sort of multiple intolerances and allergies and even reactions towards the common one I'm seeing is reactions towards breast milk. Um, I don't know if you're seeing a similar thing. And I'm sure like I'm not saying it is the father's fault. I'm not pointing a <laughs> finger, but I do think that there, there must be because they say that you get attracted to people with a different immune, the opposite immune system, don't they? And so I just think that that could be if they if the father has an overactive immune system it's being passed on to the baby and then therefore it's uh, but the, the really sad thing is I feel like the mother suffers more as a result because often um there will be issues with breastfeeding and weaning and things like that so um I, I think you have a point I mean I'm, I'm not sure about the research behind it but I think it's definitely worthwhile even just cleaning up the diet alone yeah. and making sure that they don't have any ill health conditions prior to conception if you can do that that I mean that's that's a winner but on you know on that subject you only have to look at people who don't do anything preconceptually and they are incredibly unhealthy um perhaps really inflammatory really overweight both mother and father and they fall I I don't know how they fall pregnant but they fall pregnant and they they manage to have normal pregnancies perhaps assisted births, perhaps their children aren't the healthiest that they would be. And, and as functional medicine practitioners, we would potentially see a lot of errors, in, well, not errors, but we would see a lot of complaints in the children that wouldn't be picked up on mainstream, um, like atopic conditions like eczema and um, tonsillitis and a lot of immune um, faults initially in the early stages but on the kind of larger scale of things so looking at it from a, a mainstream angle you would see nothing wrong with the child yeah no, it's similar. It's, it's, I suppose it sort of works both ways you can be you can worry too much as well from that yeah. sense and that can also be an added stress to both mother and father yeah. Um, but one thing, and this is jumping forward because I know we really want to talk to you about labour and sort of what your plans are for that. But just skipping forward a little bit to breastfeeding, um, what, sort of, what sort of advice do you offer to mums who um, I'm seeing several cases of women who don't produce enough milk um, yeah. or there is some sort of um, lactose intolerance being diagnosed in early stages. So I've seen now mums being told to use um, soya formula um, and that's... Uh, but that's after having tried goat's milk and um, getting a similar reaction and soya being the only one that a baby could possibly keep down. So um, I just wonder if you had any advice on one hand, mums can sort of prevent that maybe from happening in the first place or what their options are um, should those reactions occur. There's, there's now, there's, there was recent uh, research in suggesting that the injection that they give you so, so post once you've had the baby, they want to get the placenta out, and sometimes naturally that can take up to twenty to thirty minutes. But you do need to, and this is what I'm actually going to ask Dan to remind me to do because you do go a little bit right brain labour. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> so um, one thing I'll get Dan to remind me to do is to allow gravity to pull that placenta out. So that means standing up and jigging about a bit. Often, if you're in hospital, and I'm planning a home birth, but if you're in hospital, there they can be, depending on what hospital you visit, they can be a bit 
pushy in terms of time and they will immediately say, okay, we're going to give you the injection to get your placenta out, which I think is oxytocin, actually. I can't remember. And actually, that that has now been linked with problems with breastfeeding. Oh, wow. Not, wow. not lactose problems, but in terms of your um, milk production. And not only that, but also the pain on breastfeeding. So there is this very beautiful image of, you know, a mother gazing into her baby's eyes, nursing, um, that, you know, you just think, there's my boob, there's its mouth, I'm going to stick it in and all's going to be well. But in, in actual fact, it, it's very painful initially. The first two weeks of breastfeeding can be uncomfortable. But there's now, the research was suggesting that the, the placenta injection to encourage the placenta to drop out of the woman's body is actually now being linked with problems with breastfeeding. God. So there's, there's that side of things. In terms of the, the lactose intolerance thing, one, one lady or mother I did come across was actually still using um, a, a cow's milk formula, but it was an organic one, um, and she was using uh, lact, uh, lactose drops, lactase drops, sorry, and that was actually, the baby was then able to take the formula, at least it wasn't, I mean, it's formula, but at least it wasn't soy formula. Yes. And that actually, the baby was fine on doing that. So I think there are ways to, to overcome it. But I think the reason as to why it would be there, uh, you're talking about your immune system again. And I think we, we, we touched on last time about the fact that we are so over, well, we're, we're inundated, out of our control chemicals in our world now. And they are having an effect on our microbiome and they are having an effect on our immune system and all of our ability to, to tolerate things in general. So I think there is a large interplay with our environments and the babies that we're producing and in terms of their, their own immune reactions. Um, so I think there's a big link there. So I suppose everything you're doing throughout pregnancy and with Dan to basically support gut health um, yeah. is is the best you can really do and then obviously we've spoken before about having the most natural birth process you can and and obviously breastfeeding where possible yeah to help build the immune system so Emma what what are your reasons for having a home birth then ah well firstly on a personal level I don't feel comfortable in hospitals <laughs> I find them incredibly stuffy um they're not warming or welcoming um, and you're likely to get MRSA. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, so that's that's just on a personal level. I don't, don't feel comfortable. I don't think many people feel comfortable in hospitals, to be honest. Yeah. No. Um, the birthing, the whole birth idea, uh, you need to encourage a relaxed environment. And yes, there are, in, in my hospital, there is uh, what's called an oasis unit, which is um, they have a whole unit which kind of replicates a home environment. So it's not very sterile. There are birthing pools in there and there are less um, equipment, there's less equipment for intervention. Um, things like forceps aren't on view, they're hidden. Um, any tools that they might need to use are hidden again. So there's certainly um, the whole birthing labour idea now has changed quite significantly in hospitals so you don't have to opt for a maternity ward birth you can if you want a hospital birth because you feel more comfortable about it you can go in one of these birthing units 
and potentially have quite a very natural, comfortable birth. To me, I feel more comfortable at home. I also am selfish in the terms of I don't want to share my midwife with anyone. (laughs) So having a home birth, you actually get two midwives sent to you. One is to assist you, so she comes initially when she feels appropriate um, throughout your stage of labour. And then another one will be sent, um, well, the idea is on the actual birth happening, um, because they're sent for the, the safety of the baby. Um, so, so in terms of, of safety, I feel more in control at home. I feel like I'm going to be less pressurised for any intervention, largely because A, isn't available in my house, and, and B, the midwives prefer home births now. They're very pro-home births. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, that's probably changed in the last two or three years. I thought I would have a struggle um, when I initially had my first midwife appointment and they said, have you thought about what type of birth you want? And I said, yeah, I want a home birth. I thought I was going to have to fight for it. And in actual fact, they raised their arms with joy and said, we love home births. We can only encourage you to do it. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, which was brilliant. So that that's very reassuring. So as a home birth then, like, are you having like a water birth or just on your bed? <laughs> So the idea is, is that when, when women go through labour, they, they probably go through, um, or their partners probably see a side to them that they've never seen before, which is almost <laughs> like a wild animalistic woman. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Dan can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is the desire to strip off naked. Um, and you don't want to be, it's not that, um, well, kind of... him or you. <laughs> <laughs> Dan will probably get involved. All in for support and all of that. <laughs> yeah. He'll probably be jumping in that first pool as well. Because... <laughs> but um, there is there is this desire to to make random animal noises to 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 be able to freely move comfortably without um, feeling uh, like a weirdo. So so if you're in a hospital, I mean, if you're in, if you manage to get a birthing room in one of those lovely birthing centres, then yeah. you're on your own. If you're on a ward, you're not on your own and you're usually confined to a bed. Um, uh, so, so when you're at home, if I want to strip naked, I can. If I want to do squats or lunges naked around my house, I can. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'm not, there's going to be, in the back of you, you want as little or as minimal pressure or uh, observance as possible. So, um, so yeah, so the, the home birth really gives you that. The, I think people or women can get a bit frightened, especially if it's their first child, because they think, what if something goes wrong? But... Um, the actual, what my midwife said to me that in terms, I mean, I'm only 10 minutes away from a local hospital anyway, but if there is something that goes wrong, they will call an ambulance and you will normally get two or three ambulances show up. You become priority on whatever call they're on because largely everyone is fascinated Mm. and wants to save new life. And if there is a need, I'm either going to have a home birth or, unfortunately, if I need to go to hospital, it will probably end up being a C-section, um, which I'm really obviously trying to avoid. But you have to kind of be realistic about um, 
the reality of, of birth and labour. Yeah. So, so touch wood, everything goes to plan and I, I managed to have the home birth. But, um, so I'm also going to have um, a water birth, yeah. So we've got a massive, oh, which really? actually, it, it, <laughs> it literally takes up the entire lounge. Wow. <laughs> so that's there now already? It's there. It's not inflated yet. Right. But, but like, like, what would happen if you, I don't know, if your bloody, your water broke, like now? Dan has to get pumping the pool up. I'd be cutting this podcast short. <laughs> yeah. I just stand to blow this. Yeah, but, I mean, is there an estimated time on how long it takes to inflate it the pool. and fill it up? <laughs> yeah. Have you thought this through, Emma? <laughs> Take between five to six minutes to blow up. Yeah. And um, I can't remember how many litres of water it is, but it will take about an hour to two hours to fill. <laughs> wow. But, but I mean, the, the thing about a water birth is um, you have to be a little bit careful because the water birth, um, the water itself acts as a, as a pain relief. Yeah. Um, equivalent to, to pethidine. Wow. Um, wow. So, so by getting into the birthing pool too <laughs> early, what you can do is you can relax too much and stop the contractions. And each contraction is a good thing because it means that the baby is moving moving further down into the cervix, into the birthing canal, and then out. So you don't really want to stop, although you, want, although you feel like you want to stop the contractions, you don't want to stop the contractions because every contraction is closer to the baby being here. So at the point that you enter the pool, needs to be the point where you you're at the point where you're going to give birth and you're just going to use that water as the last kind of pain relief oh, so you're not sat in it for the sort of hours waiting that's what i always imagined it's like yeah. a bath no in, in what can happen in fact is you sit in it initially on the on the onset of a few little contractions and it slows you down Oh, so wow. what they what they tend to do is then they say okay we've got to get you out of the pool, and obviously when as soon as you stand up, gravity starts pulling down and it hurts like hell. So you you, you almost don't want to get out of the water. Oh wow! So what what do you do? Do you, you just stood up then like before that or? So I th- I mean I don't know Matt because I haven't been through it yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need to get organised, love. You ain't, you ain't got long. <laughs> Imagining, um, it's not it's not like a, a scene out of a, a film where the woman is is bed bound. You know, she's lying on her back. That in fact, that's the last position you want to be in to assist birth because your pelvis can't move backwards. So it's important, really. A, a lot of women give birth on all fours um, yeah. or between the contractions. So the contractions should last for about a minute, and you should have. Well, in the initial stages, quite a few minutes between each one, and that's to allow your recovery. Um, um, and then, obviously, closer to the actual baby appearing, the contractions are, are, are ongoing. Um, but a lot of women, they'll have a contraction, and then they'll lie on their side and literally fall into a deep sleep for two minutes, yeah. <laughs> and then they'll have another contraction. Um, uh, the, the, the only the, So the contractions are really relevant and important to this communication that's happening between you and the baby and the baby coming out um such uh, issues that arise are if you're induced um and if you're induced what can happen is is that you because st- what they're doing by inducing you is they're starting labor off for you 
and they're starting your contractions off. And the problem is, is that the drugs that they use means that you lose control. They're not natural contractions anymore. So rather than a minute of contraction and then a rest, you just have contraction after contraction after contraction, and it ends up being so unbearable that you you either have further intervention or you end up having a C-section or epidural or something like that. So that's something that I'm really, really trying to avoid. And it's just, I'm assuming no one's talked to you through any of this. This is all from your own research yeah, that, that you've discovered most of these options and, and what are the likely outcomes of different, you know... Yeah, they, when you're 36 weeks pregnant, which I haven't reached yet, they do, they ask you for a birthing plan. I mean, they're not, they're not evil. They, they will support you. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll ask you for your birthing plan. And if you say, I don't want to be induced or I don't want any internals or um, I want home birth, I want a water birth, I don't want um, placenta injection or vitamin K injection or I want the baby immediately put onto my skin, um, they will support that. Yeah. Um, the the where it, where you start to lose a little bit of control is to do with this whole dating thing. So no matter how um, convinced you are on your own conception date, they will always go by the measurements of the first scan and the second scan. So they give you often between the first and the second scan, they'll the the dates may vary. Um, but that date is then in black and white on their file. Now, you could be, so a kind of a full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks. You start to become 41 weeks pregnant or even 39 weeks, they'll start saying, oh, let, okay, let's see if we can book you in for an induction. Oh, dear. And, you know, and it might and not even be the right date. <laughs> it might, well, firstly, exactly, yeah. it might not be the right date. Yeah. And, and secondly, you start to get panicky because there's a fear that, you know, you reach 42 weeks and the baby start, the baby's digestive tract starts to work properly. So it produces meconium, which is baby poo. And that can cause problems if it, if it, if there's meconium inside the placenta and there's potential increased risk of infection and problems later on with the child, if it's then born. Um, but so there's a lot of fear around it. So, so they they are incredibly supportive, and like even in in the sense of, I thought I'd I thought I'd actually got away with being offered the flu vaccination and the whooping cough vaccination until two days ago, um, when they actually called me from my surgery and said, we'd like to offer you complimentary flu vaccine and whooping cough, which I thought the words were really funny because yeah. it's like. They were offering me a complimentary glass of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> Something to be sought after here. <laughs> exactly. And I very politely said, that's very kind of you, but I will decline. Thank you. <laughs> did, did they Did they ask you why? No, they didn't. They just left it at that. They said, okay, we'll, we'll sign you off on your form as you have declined. And I said, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> So, so what, why did you decline then? Oh, because um, the flu vaccination is, oh, I mean, there's all sorts of controversy around the flu vaccination, but, but largely speaking, um, you don't, they, they, whoever they are, don't know what type of virus is going to be the virus that gives everyone flu this year. So they're um, guessing 
It could be viruses change. That's why we always get colds and flu um, year in, year out, because viruses are very clever. They change their structure and form. So we are predicting what type of virus it might be that um, actually gives someone flu. Secondly, you often get flu on after having the flu vaccination, which almost, to me, seems pointless in having it in the first place. Yes. Um, thirdly, the flu very, very rarely kills people. Very rarely. Um, and then the, the next thing would be the ingredients inside the flu vaccination. One of them is mercury. Why would I want to be putting mercury in my body? Yeah. During pregnancy. Might as well go and get some more fillings while you're there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and it, it just seems completely balmy to be offering a pregnant woman a flu vaccination. Yeah, the whooping cough vaccination, similar issues, not because it's not not because it's related to a virus, but um, more to do with the fact that, um, well, I think the reason why they offer whooping cough now is because there was a, a higher prevalence of it in certain parts of London. And so, and that's not, you know, on birth, that's just in children. But what I don't quite understand, and unfortunately I do get a bit paranoid here in the sense that I think this is just purely a money-making thing, because the babies, if you, if you do then choose to have your baby um, immunised, go um, following the NHS protocol, which I'm not going to be doing, but if you do, whooping cough is one of those, and so why would you why would the the female need to take it the mother needs to take it when she's pregnant when she, the baby's going to get it anyway in the first 6 weeks of of birth um it, it doesn't quite make make much sense to me and again there are just um added extras in that vaccination and you're giving a, a live a live form of, of the virus uh, I just don't think it's a good idea and is that have you are you sort of looking ahead at all the vaccinations that you're going to be offered in the next basically it's like the next up to about four years isn't it and plus actually now because there's, there's some are given in um, secondary schools aren't they are you sort of researching all of those now and what you're gonna maybe agree to yeah you know I've I pretty much decided years ago before I even thought about becoming a mother that vaccinations wouldn't be an option for me um I think if I were to take my baby abroad and if it be out of its uh, normal environment I think then you want to perhaps especially if you're going to randomly take it somewhere tropical like India or somewhere like that you you might want to look at hepatitis um, and tetanus yeah um, but certainly uh, n not really any of the rest of them and like you know even if you think about the rubella vaccination um, probably Keris you and I had it when we were about 12 yeah I remember that one yeah, and that's because at that age we're beginning to go into puberty. Um, it's, it would be dangerous for a pregnant woman to catch rubella, so there's no point in having the rubella vaccination as a baby because you're not about to enter puberty. So, so you there's you know if there is if there is a a fight a positive fight for the rubella vaccination, then I'd say why jeopardise the immune system when it's only developing in the baby stages? Why not wait until the child is 11 or 12 when their immune system is fully developed and they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're turning into adults, they're fully formed, their bodies are fully formed, their immune systems are working, their gut is, is functioning properly. When a baby is born, everything is still developing. So you don't, if you're going to vaccinate, 
Um, I'd, I'd really look into each vaccination and why, and could you delay it if you were going to do it at all? And if you didn't delay it, what, what are the consequences of actually the baby having that disease? And could you cope with the consequences of having that disease? Um, a lot of people who are anti-vaccinations will actually suggest that by the baby having the disease, their immune system becomes stronger. Um, and that, you know, that can be quite a tricky thing to advise people on, and it needs to be the mother's own decision. Yeah. Because if she doesn't feel like she can cope with the side effects or the symptoms that come with the disease, and she panics, then obviously it's better to have the vaccination. But perhaps the vaccination doesn't need to be given until the baby's at least one. Um, so you don't need all those early six-week, 12-week, 40 million vaccinations. You can delay them. And and what um, similarly, if you've thought about vitamin K, um, and would you explain to listeners sort of why that's given and, and what your take is on on taking that and having that injection? Yeah. Um, so vitamin K is is largely given um, to help the baby clot the blood. So vitamin K is made in our guts by our bacteria, and they used to think that the baby was born with a sterile gut. In fact, we know now that in the third trimester, the baby starts to develop some bacteria. So it's not completely sterile. Um, so the idea is, is that a baby is born, and within a couple of days, a few days, the gut will start to produce vitamin K, but not initially. So that's just that's natural. That's what happens. Um, however, what the reason why they give the vitamin K initially is because those few days where the baby supposedly isn't developing vitamin K, if the baby had an accident, then it could potentially hemorrhage or you know bleed to death. So uh, a kind of risk factor you'd you'd be aware of there is. Do you have any blood disorders in your family? And if you don't, so I don't have any, there's no blood disorders in my family. I'm not a high-risk bleeder as such. Um, and I believe that, I mean, obviously, if I manage successfully to have, which I'm sure I will, have um, a vaginal birth and I'm able to breastfeed, then mm. and I'm not going to, in the first three days, take put my baby on the back of a motorbike and whiz it around the M25. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to put it at a high risk of having a, having an accident. Then I, I really just find it an unnecessary again in, an unnecessary intervention. If you had a blood disorder or if you had potentially a C-section baby, I might think twice. I might say mm, perhaps err on the side of caution yeah. and, and have the vitamin K. Um, the problems are um, in terms of having it are are linked with the dosage being incredibly high and it causing neurological damage. Um, but, but the research is a little bit far-fetched, to be honest. But largely speaking, I, nature doesn't require it for probably a reason. And we don't know by injecting that vitamin K, again, on an individual, what we're doing to cause an imbalance elsewhere. Is there a reason why for the first couple of days of of being on earth why that baby doesn't create vitamin k if it doesn't at all i mean that's just a, a presumption it does just seem like we interfere sometimes um you know that like the medical world just seems to interfere like it knows best and i just think no one knows better than mother nature really that's yeah, yeah i agree and uh, the, you know the, there must be several populations that do not do any of this 
and still are able to to grow and thrive and and, and reproduce it just and you've said this before Matt about um we, we can't talk because we've obviously never ever um been there been tossed or given birth to a baby but and I said to Matt you could probably never say this publicly but I'm doing it for him about <laughs> the the level of um things that we have to have you know the drugs the the medical support to give birth when animals just crawl away and go under a bush and do it you know it's just yeah. that that's their instinct that's what they've always yeah. always known what to do and how to do it and it's just yeah. we suddenly have, have, have sort of medicalized everything yeah i think i think the word fear is is very appropriate yeah, yeah i agree definitely. with that it's yeah. just like we we planted that seed you know that you know pregnancy is something you need to stress about worry about have you had this done have you had that done yeah and and if but, you think if, if i'd never come across naturopathy alternative medicine i'd be going down this route I, absolutely yeah. i'd almost be assuming i was going to have gas and air and drugs <laughs> like yeah. you know, I just it's a given Standard, I, yeah i wouldn't yeah, even well, i mean it was only it was only yesterday in fact a lady at, at the gym said to me oh you're nearly due aren't you and i said yeah and she said oh take everything that they offer you <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and i just i laughed and i thought oh, i'm going to go then <laughs> but but that's that's kind of the mind the mindset now and also not only about the birthing is there fear around it there's also fear around not being prepared for the baby arriving and by that I mean my, my one of my best friends is pregnant as well and she's only a week ahead of me which is lovely to go through it together we wow. are very 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 different she's not a naturopath in any sense <laughs> and and she her and her husband have pretty much gone to every mamas and papas and i don't know what other shops mother cares and bought the entire shop and i haven't even ventured into one of these shops <laughs> and the only thing that i've actually bought new is a wrap so it's called a hannah wrap which is like one of those african mummy wrap things oh yeah oh yeah and not a wrappers in sandwich. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's the only, that's the, actually that's the only thing I bought um, because in my eyes, oh, uh, I've got I've got some um, reusable nappies which are, are made by a company called Little Lamb, and I've got something that's called Cheeky Wipes, which are just basically water wipes with essential oils on them to wipe baby's bum. Apart from that, all it needs is me. <laughs> it needs my breast, my milk, and a lot of cuddles and warm. Oh, I'll help out with the cuddles, Emma. <laughs> Good. Um, but yeah, that, you know, that's all it needs. Um, that's and later on, add things as, as you need them. But there is no mad rush. And literally, my, my friend, is, her and her husband have every weekend, have you got this? Have you got this? Have you got this? Do we need this? Do we need to get this gadget? And you just don't need this. And they've probably spent over a £1,000 on wow. rubbish that they'll probably not use. And you forget that the baby's only a baby for a short period of time. Yeah, thing, isn't it? <laughs> And after you just end up giving it away, won't you, in six months' time? Yeah, but like you said, you never even know if you will use half of this stuff. Like, we say this about, I see these women with these, they look like the Porsche of prams. Like, they're <laughs> huge and shiny and big. And I'm like, God, did you really need that? And then they say, yeah, because we've got to carry this and that and this. And I don't know, I always say to Matt, I think it'd be a bit of a challenge, but I'd love to think you could just walk out the door with, a, you know, a bag and a baby on the front, you know, if... Yeah. 
Well, if that's, possible. That's what I'm aiming for, Chris. <laughs> there are pros to carrying the baby rather than yeah. it in a pram. Um, by, by the actual baby being um, just gently compressed against your tummy, it, well, apart from anything else, it's got constant contact with you, so there's yeah. less crying. Um, but it's also, um, uh, you're almost massaged, well, you're massaging its belly, so you're actually burping it. Um, and it's, it's, so there's less crying, there's less discomfort gastrointestinally because you're burping it whilst you're walking around with it. Um, and, and all it wants to do is feel warm and feel your skin. Yeah. It needs, it needs, its needs are food and, and warmth and comfort um, and love, obviously. So, and that's, that, that's really the only needs that, that are, need to be fulfilled. And in terms for you, it's, it's an amazing way to basically exercise without taking time out, time away. A lot of women are quite keen to get back to the gym and, yeah. you know, and I always think, I think just the amount of, of walking and things that you're going to be doing, you know, across the day, you're never really going to be sat down other than obviously breastfeeding, you know, just doing nothing. Um, and are you going to increase um, calories for around breastfeeding? Because I know that's the time when you probably are going to need to, because you haven't throughout pregnancy really. No, not at all, not at all. In fact, if anything, in this, this last trimester, I'm probably eating less. Um, and that's, that's only because everything is, is now uh, quite compressed. Yeah. So, so although I'm not experiencing reflux, which is very lucky, um, I'm, I find that I'm hungry and then I, I eat and then I'm full. Um, so if anything, my calories have gone down a little bit, although I wouldn't really know that to be sure. Um, um, and then, so, so throughout breastfeeding, probably I'm not going to intentionally increase calories or food. Um, I'm just going to try and eat normally. But if I, if I feel like I'm hungry, then yeah, I'm going to listen to it and I'll eat. Um, and it's obviously not going to be your usual breastfeeding grab and go food. I was going to say, what what are you sort of planning to do? Because this is the other um, barrier that I get a lot of women who've, who've had a baby say to me in terms of food preparation, there's just no time. And, and we sort of, you know, I whiz in recipes for everything from tortillas to, you know, I say just stick a whole chicken in the oven, you know, that. And then you wander off and do your thing. And in, in an hour, you've got a meal and yeah. slice up an avocado. But they, they often say um, they end up reaching for cereal and other stuff because yeah. they haven't got the energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, um, I mean, I'm going to be making balls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I. <laughs> so, so I think I'll make a lot of, like, energy balls. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm glad you've asked me that because you've just prompted me to probably start getting on to doing it. <laughs> um, but my idea is, is I'm going to have um, coconut water stashed away because that's a great energy placement and really good I think in terms of hydration and electrolytes. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have coconut water stashed away. I'm going to be making quick things for me are smoothies. Yeah. So you only have to, and you can make a very calorific smoothie if you like. So you're only going to chuck in some MCT um, oil, uh, coconut oil, coconut milk, uh, chuck in a protein powder, chuck in cacao if you want. Perhaps like frozen fruits, um, <laughs> bananas, cherries, etc. Chuck in some greens, and you know you have a meal there. Like some smoothies that I make are hefty; they're hefty meals. Um, so I, I personally think, because as as you the, the the ideas that you suggested, Karis, about 
putting on a slow cooker. We have a slow cooker, and that's definitely going to be in a lot of use <laughs> in the early stages. But also quick food, as in, you know, you can whiz up a smoothie as quickly as you can pour out a bowl of Rice Krispies or whatever it is, cereal that, that they tend to find is a quick snack. And in terms of, like, biscuits and cakes... Dark chocolate is still going to be a winner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, um, and also making making like truffle balls and, and energy balls and, and things like that. So I'm just going to have a stash. I suppose you could make a lot of it now and freeze it, like the energy balls and dark chocolate. Um, not dark chocolate, but you know you could do like the raw chocolate. And stuff. That could all be frozen, couldn't it? And then... Yeah. Yeah, well, raw chocolate you wouldn't even need to freeze because that, that would last a year if it's tempered anyway. Yeah. So so there's there's no need to even use a freezer. You just make it and stash it. I'm just thinking if I did that, I'd probably be gone by the time yeah, the baby's arrived. There's, there's, there's risks here, yeah. <laughs> The good news of living with Dan, he's not actually a massive chocolate fan. Is he not? No, it's insane. I don't quite trust him. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it ice cream for him or coffee or something? There's got to be something. It's a Yorkie bar. Oh, no. <laughs> his idea of chocolate he he likes my chocolate like he'll he'll try it and he'll like it but i will quite happily leave like some broken pieces of chocolate on a plate in the kitchen and i can i can leave the house and he'd be there all day and he wouldn't have touched it oh dear um, he, he, wow. he, he loves coffee um that's pretty much in his blood anyway yeah it's italian yeah, but um, but in terms of, of chocolate, he's he, he would rather have what he would call proper food. So he would rather have um, like some kind of soup or some kind of meat, like salami or something like that. A lot of, a lot of guys do say yeah. that, actually, don't they? I, I, you're, you're I, a bit like I that. I prefer savoury, definitely. Yeah. But then I'll, I'll, you know, and then I'll probably have the chocolate afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have it instead of. <laughs> yeah, Dan, Dan's... Yeah, so so the good news is is that I will I can make these things and it won't be <laughs> knocked back by a hungry mat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that that's what I think I'll be. It's also nut butters. I mean, you could just put a teaspoon in, in a, a jar of nut butter and devour the entire jar if you wanted. I know I'm, I'm the same as you. I think because your needs are greater. If anything. I understand that they'll be eaten on the hoof and, and, you know, prep time is going to be compromised, but I still, I, I just know, I know what I'm like. And even when we run off our feet, I'll still be like, just shove a chicken in the oven. Yeah, you know, we never sort of resort to... Do you know what though, like... The worst we've ever done is have a supermarket soup. Did, like, but that'll be a Waitrose organic, you know, with nothing yeah. but vegetables in it. That's the worst yeah. thing, I think. The, the closest we've ever come to a ready meal. Yeah, well, if that's the worst thing you've done, I mean, that's not too bad, is it? No, no. But also, I just think, like, oh, I don't know. I mean, who am I to say, you know, one will never be pregnant or give birth? But, <laughs> no, I'm just a bit like, you know, like, what what do people expect? You know, like, if they've got a, a new arrival on the way that solely relies on you to survive, you know, like, it's, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be demanding of your time. You know, it's part and parcel of the whole process. And, you know, if you're with someone who's loving and caring and feels the same about that child as you, which, you know, you of course are, then what's the drama? You just work as a team and... See it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I think that there is um, perhaps, I don't know, I have certainly met women and, and 
clients who don't unfortunately don't have full support from their partners Um, or perhaps maybe it's not so much the support but perhaps the partners aren't very wise in the kitchen or they don't they don't quite know what to do um I mean fortunately Dan's a bit of a whiz in the kitchen so he's already he's fully on board with all of all of the pregnancy birth everything and can't wait actually to meet our little baby so so that's lovely but he'll also he's already said don't worry about it I'll be doing the cooking in the kitchen um so I'm quite lucky in that respect but but certainly there is you do have to question this this team effort from the mother and the father and it shouldn't just solely be on the woman alone oh god yes 100% Matt wants to ask about the placenta encapsulation that you've put on the list <laughs> yeah, I'm intrigued yeah great so so um Keris was only summarizing your words which is the animals give birth and then normally climb under a rock somewhere and rest but normally they also then eat their own placenta so um I'm actually opting for placenta encapsulation which is um uh, so they're they're actually a company and I think they're called placentanetwork.com oh, and they put it into a tablet or something yeah, they. Well, I'm opting for the smoothie and and <laughs> <laughs> so what they do is um, you you, t- you let them know when you're when you're going into labour, and they will come out and on arrival of the placenta, they take like a palm sized piece of it, and they blend it into a smoothie with berries, bananas, etc., frozen. And they give it to you, and the idea is you've just been through one of well, as I I, I um, uh, likened it to running a marathon. So you're completely exhausted after giving birth, and you've probably been through one of the most dramatic phases in your life that you could ever possibly go through. Um, and it's very very taxing, and um, you're knackered. So the idea is is that um, it's incredibly nutrient dense. So when you drink that smoothie, you're giving back some of the nutrients that are inside that placenta that have been feeding your baby back to your body. Um, and so, so you do that immediately and then they take the rest away and they, I think they cook it and then dehydrate it and put it into capsules. So then you can take a capsule a day until it runs out. And it's supposed to help with, um, postnatal depression in the sense that because of the hormones that are in it and all your hormones are whacked all over the place, it will help balance your hormones. It will help with your milk supply. So it actually helps um, give you a good constant supply of milk. Um, you're you're less you're a lot more likely to recover in, in a better way, and that that means in terms of your uterus um, contracting again back up into the place where it's supposed to be. Um, and and generally, it's just it's almost like a multivitamin, but without all the synthetic process. Were you not just tempted to put the placenta in the Nutribullet afterwards? <laughs> just it up with some berries. You don't need that company. Yeah, just... Buy yourself a dehydrator. Sorted. No, the funny thing is, is that I, I mean, I have a Vitamix and I have a dehydrator, so I potentially could do it myself, but I'm just rather leave it to someone else. No, I get that. No, I think, um, I'm sure a, a celebrity recently done it. Yeah, someone no. did, yeah. yeah. I, I read something about it. I didn't know it had that many benefits, actually. And the hormone oh, thing, particularly, would make sense because you've mentioned how... It's, how a, it's, a, it's only right Dan has some as well, though. It's <laughs> 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 probably would try it. <laughs> yeah, it looks quite nice, actually. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I was just going to say the hormone thing would make so much sense because everyone's you've said about how how you feel in pregnancy, all those happy hormones, all the progesterone. So, yeah, that would be um, yeah. Oh, I completely get that. No, it's, it's, it sounds. I mean, it sounds well. It sounds pretty grim, but um, at the same time, it sounds amazing. It did before. Yeah, I think before you sort of explained it, all the benefits and how it's all done, I, I, I can totally understand it. Yeah, yeah. There's there's certainly no um, negative effects of doing it. I reckon all these juice bars will be selling it soon, don't yeah. you worry. <laughs> you can have power placenta shots. So it's, it's just a matter of time. I'll have placenta shots and breast milk ice cream. Yeah, and exactly. Do you know what? It's what most people actually need. That's the scary thing. Well, speak, true. speaking of the bone broth, Sam, I don't know if you um, <clears throat> you saw what I posted on the Fit Food page the other day. There's a, I did. A, you see that? Yes. The guy bloody you did you did you even It's in America, see that? wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And he's basically got a little hut where he serves bone broth in coffee cups, which is, is awesome. Yes. Well I I've seen recently there's a big Hollywood thing about um bone broth now because some nutritionists started recommending it to celebrities to help reduce cellulite and yes. wrinkles. And so then I saw it in the Times, I think it's been the Daily Mail that it's the next thing we should all be doing. The thing is though, it just all it will take is for someone like I mean, who's who's hot right now? Um, anyone else? Uh, someone off X Factor, maybe? I don't no, know. No, like someone more global. I don't know, like uh, One Direction. One Direction, yeah. Yeah, the, I mean the One Direction. I tell you what, I'd like or... to get hold of Harry Styles. His skin looks a bit awful at the moment. He could do with some bone broth. <laughs> he could do with some collagen and whatnot. He definitely needs some. But who, who's the girl in um, Hunger Games? Oh yeah, yeah, she so would be good. Uh, she, you know, if she was to turn around and say, "I'd have bone broth a day," yeah. God, that'd be it. It yeah. would be like butchers would be rubbing their hands together. But actually, she's come out and said, uh, "Do you know, you know, uh, J Lo from Hunger Games, Emma? Yeah, yeah. She actually came out recently and said she thinks gluten free is the latest eating disorder, um, which really annoyed me. Actually, okay, we won't use her. As yeah. let's, let's think of someone else. We don't like J Lo. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, because so many celebrities have taken it, gone with it, and I think there are some very, I'd say, two, two. Um, two slim women that are saying this is the result of gluten-free, like Renny Zellweger said it, didn't she? Yeah, but that I think... Was the, yeah, she but, said it was gluten-free that made her look like a completely different person. Yeah, but to be fair, Renny Zellweger did look absolutely horrendous. But, yeah. But, but, but she's probably done the typical gluten-free or paleo diet of going massively low-carb, probably being malnourished, losing weight way oh, no, too I don't, I don't doubt half of them are probably over-exercising and doing yeah. other things. But it just frustrates me that it then gives such a bad name to gluten-free nutrition when I just think it doesn't need to be that different to what most people eat. It's, exactly. You, know, you swap a potato for some pasta, that's Look what you do. Look defensive. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, it's interesting because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking when, when I was in the raw food movement years and years ago now, there it was definitely an excuse for women with eating disorders and men really? to come on board the raw food movement. I mean, you look at what you're doing when you're in the raw food movement. Back then, it was a vegan, pretty much fruitarian diet. So you're not eating any fat, and you're not eating any well, you're not pretty much you're not eating much. Um, so, so I think uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly. Gluten-free is definitely not an ill health thing to be to be advocating or um, advising people or even following. It's only ever going to do someone of benefit. Um, but probably there are people, and uh, I think there are people that jump onto things because when you do, I mean, look at Dan, when you do cut out gluten and you are intolerant to it, 
you will see weight loss. Yeah. So so perhaps people do jump onto the bandwagon of gluten free because they want to, to look good, which isn't a bad thing to want. Um, and you know, to want to lose weight because it does have that effect. But but then I would I would ask, is that a bad thing? I mean it's not like whatever that actress's name, if she is suggesting that a gluten free thing is a way of somebody disguising um, an eating disorder, are the consequences, if that is the case, are the consequences of going gluten-free detrimental? Absolutely not. No, I think that was my frustration with it. But just, yeah. just, and I, I've got, like you, I've got friends that don't eat anywhere near paleo, primal and gluten-free and completely disagree with it. And it just, when that came out, they were a bit like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? It's that elimination diet that you do and it's, it's, it's really not healthy. It's not, it's not what we should be doing. So I'm just plugging in the laptop because that battery's about to go. That's all right. Yeah, Emma, one last question before we wrap up, because uh, every time we speak, we, we obviously just tend to just chat a little bit longer. So the last time we've done a podcast, it was the longest podcast in history. This is now the and longest. And we've now, you know, we've, we've passed that big time. But I'm, I'm intrigued by, in your notes, uh, not cutting the cord, at least until it has stopped pulsating. Oh, yes. So, so this is the umbilical cord. So again, the same with, um, and this is the, the benefit of having a home birth and being more in control. So when you're in the hospital environment, what tends to happen is they have they like to quickly turn you around. So um, there is relevance to this umbilical cord. It's been feeding your baby throughout its entire life so far, and on actually arriving through, you know, in, into our our, our arms. Um, they generally cut the cord very quickly. But in actual fact, until the cord has stopped pulsating, it's still delivering vital nutrients to the baby. So so the idea is is that you actually write on your birthing plan, um, please don't cut the cord until it has stopped pulsating. Um, And it's very, very clear to see. And sometimes that can be 20 to 30 minutes. So rather than the baby being delivered and then you cutting the cord immediately, there's still some vital um, um, work to be doing that, that the umbilical cord has. That is amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And, and then you can cut the cord. There's no, there's no mad rush with anything. Unfortunately, you can feel that way. Um, if you don't know, if you haven't researched, you, you know what actually this whole birth process is about. Which really should be slow. It should be calm. It should be support. There should be support there, um, and, and and there should be plenty of time for everything. Yeah, I think yeah, every I think every woman just thinks it's something that just needs to be got over and done, done with. with yeah. yeah, and and the sooner the better, really. Which is like you said, a shame because it, it can actually result in maybe a, a more painful experience and, a, you know, not the nicest experience all round. Whereas if there was a bit more relaxation, a bit more sort of a calmer environment, then it could be a, 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 a nicer experience. I'm not going to say nice because I'm sure women everywhere <laughs> would shoot me down for that. But. Um, the other thing as well is what they're quick to do is clean the baby. And um, the baby will come with a layer of what's called vernix on it. And it's very kind of easy to go, what's that? But actually, you shouldn't, you shouldn't clean the vernix. It's almost like a, a, white, a white layer. Yeah. You should actually rub it in. Um, and actually, I was reading this a while ago that Johnson & Johnson 
created the smell of their um, baby oils and lotions and things to be the same smell as vernix. No, no way. Um, And if you rub that vernix into the baby, then it helps with with the microbiome on the skin um, and it also helps um, with keeping the the baby's skin soft and and (laughs) baby-like. So rather than wash it off, rub it in. And you don't, you don't recommend Johnson and Johnson's baby oil. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. In fact, you don't actually clean your baby for at least the first couple of weeks. No, so obviously, no. when it poos, you you, you know you wipe its bum with water, um, and any you know any you, know, you don't like leave it with a mouth surrounding full of breast milk. You wipe it with water, but you don't actually use any soap or anything like that on the baby to clean it because it's still developing. It, it, the, the microbiome in the skin is really important that you don't wash it away. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. And what sort of things will you use? Are you going to, I'm assuming, aim for natural products and soaps and things? I think, do you know, I think I'm largely just going to be bathing it. I, I might put, I mean, obviously I use natural um, like lotions and potions and etc. But I think probably what I'll be doing is when I get to the stage of bathing it, it will. It, it, I won't be using soap directly on the body. I'll just be bathing it in water that might have something in it. Like soapy so, water. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Actually, um, I did see that. So the Chuckling Goat um, Company who do the raw milk... Um, deliveries subscriptions they've just released um some products that you can have and they've got a a kefir cream like moisturizer um a kefir soap um and i can't remember what else and they have like on their on the farm they've got like on their website you can see that they've got a little camera of all the goats so you can see how they're raised how they're looked after um and i was just saying to my mum, my mum's got like an, an itchy arm rash and said i think i might try the the kefir cream the moisturizer on a see if we can see if we can help in some way yeah. so yeah i think the soap would be lovely actually i can tell when was excited about that <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go onto the website in a <laughs> <laughs> go and watch the goats for half an hour <laughs> well emma i'm sure there's bits that we didn't cover but it just means we'll have to have you on again we're nearly at two hours can you believe We've that we've nearly hit the two hour mark this is insane <laughs> and i'm starving <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Emma, thank you so much 